If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn this morning with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel, Samuel. 1 Samuel, I got a little mush mouth. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. After spending some time in the New Testament here at Ascension, uh, most recently working our way through the book of Galatians, we are now headed to the Old Testament for uh, a little while. As you're turning to 1 Samuel 16, uh, let me just say this, and you know this, many of you believe this, the Bible is an amazing book. An amazing collection of books, right? The Bible is not, it's not a manual. It's not a how-to book. It's this rich collection of, of poems and letters, and most significantly today, stories. Stories that, that aren't fairy tales and stories that aren't just for our kids, but stories that are real, historical, real life, real people, and stories that are for us. Of course, we are reminded this, of this last summer as we work through that great epic story of Esther like the moving pictures and novels of today, these are stories that grip us. They invite us to uh, enter in. And even more than that, these stories, because they are here in God's Word, and because this Word is not only an amazing collection of books, of letters and poems and stories, but it's living and active. These are stories that are intended to change us, right? Not, not just entertain us, not just provide useful information for dinner parties, but actually change us. There's no ancient story uh, bigger than the story of David. Despite no birth account and uh, next to nothing recorded of his childhood, David's story looms large, not only in the Bible, even though it's the most extensively narrated story in the Scriptures, at least in the Old Testament, but in all of ancient literature, David's story looms large. So I suspect that, that all of you, to some degree, are familiar with David, this shepherd boy, this singer-slash-songwriter, musician-slash-poet, warrior-slash-king. And as we're going to see, as we're going to be reminded of as we think about David today, his story is an earthly story. Right? His story is a real and raw story. And it's one of the reasons why I love David so much. A reason expressed by this quote that I read this week. This author says, Perfectionists will not be comfortable with David. Those who stumble often but who always turn with melted hearts to God for pardon and help 
will find him a brother for all situations. So today we begin a new series here at Ascension, a series on the life of David in hopes that we might find a brother for all situations. It's going to be a little bit different than normal series that we would do, a routine of working systematically through a book of the Bible. We're still going to look every week at a specific passage and ask what does God have to say to us from that specific passage, but we're not going to do it through entire books. I'm going to pick and choose these various scenes from the life of David to help us work through uh, this picture of uh, this extraordinary man. And I need to say this, as big as David's story is, David's story, of course, fits into a larger story, a bigger story of one to come, a story of God redeeming a people for himself and keeping his promises. And so this is not going to be, my hope is that this will not be a series on the life of David where we will be asking every week, how do we need to be like David? Certainly, David will reveal a lot to us about ourselves and about our hearts, good and bad. He fails like we fail. But we, brothers and sisters, we need more than a brother for all situations, as that quote says. We we need one who sticks closer than a brother. And so we can't just go week after week after week. We can't just go directly from David's life and from what we learn from him to our lives. Remember Luke 24 that we looked at recently? The road to Emmaus after the resurrection. The locked room where the resurrected Christ met his disciples. Every prophet, priest, and king points to Jesus. And so ultimately, the story of David is about a grand story. A story that gathers all other stories into its orbit, as one author says. Establishes the center and provides the comprehensive coherence. And so that's where we're headed for the next weeks and months. Not quite sure how long this is going to take, uh, but I'm excited uh, to explore the life of David, to explore the life of Christ as we see in the life of David, and then to think about how that word applies to our lives. Now, before I read the passage, I want to give some context. And I know you're thinking, man, this is a long introduction. I know it's a long introduction. Hopefully it'll be a shorter sermon to to make up for that fact, but I want to give you some context before we just jump right into the middle of 1 Samuel in chapter 16. David's story, with the exception of what we might find in the Psalter, right? David wrote a lot of the Psalms that we have studied and that we read. David's story is found in 1 and 2 Samuel, 
That's where we're going to be for the next weeks and months to come. These historical books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, follow three historical books that we have studied recently. And so the pump is primed for us to roll right in to 1st Samuel, right? We looked at uh, Joshua. That was a while ago. We looked at Judges. That was a while ago. We looked at Ruth. That was last year. Now remember, God had chosen a people for himself. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And they've entered into a covenant with him. And yet, as we've seen over and over, as we've been reminded by the book of Jeremiah, God's people wander. And they rebel against him. They don't follow his commands. He's given them a land of milk and honey, and yet they pine for more. And so you might remember the book of Judges set us up and revealed to us the heart of God's people, right? What was the distinctive line? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then the book of Ruth reminded us and set us up for a lineage of significance, a line of descendants that will produce a shepherd boy, David, that will years later produce the son of a carpenter from the region of Nazareth. So as Samuel enters into this grand story that God is telling, Samuel is a man chosen by Yahweh to be a prophet to his people, to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness in the period of the judges. The scriptures tell us this is what Samuel does with his life. 1 Samuel 7, 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. But just like a lot of other things, God's people weren't content with Samuel. They weren't content with judges. They wanted a king, like all the other nations had kings. Why can't we have one? And so in chapter 9 of this book of 1 Samuel, the Lord gives Israel what they want. He gives them a king. And his name is Saul. But Saul conducted himself like the kings of the world, not after Yahweh's heart. And so after failing to live up to God's requirements, culminating in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, where Saul makes a rash vow before the Lord, God decides to move on. And there's this stark statement written at the end of chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 35. You can see it there if you have your Bibles open. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. That's where we are. That's where we are in this grand story of God calling a people to himself. And that will set us up now for not only 1 Samuel 16, but for this life of David that we're going to spend some time in in the weeks to come. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're just going to think about the first 13 verses of this chapter. I invite you, if you're uh, willing and able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Listen as I read. This is God's Word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. 
I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, as we enter into this story about David, this is a story about God's Deliverance. Three truths. Well, really, one truth that I want to focus on this morning. The other two truths are kind of appendixes uh, that we'll look at very, very briefly at the very end. One truth about the story that God is writing that I want us to meditate on for a few minutes this morning, and it's this. God's deliverance comes through the least likely. God's deliverance comes through the least likely. As we jump into this story this morning, we are confronted immediately with a weeping prophet. And the weeping actually took off back in chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried all night 
to the Lord. Samuel is absolutely distraught. Why is Samuel distraught? Well, perhaps over what could have been, perhaps what what lies ahead for Israel now. The judges are all gone. He himself is being rejected by God's people, and now seemingly the king experiment has, has failed. What hope lies for God's people now? Now notice as we come into chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, the Lord doesn't say necessarily that Samuel's grieving is wrong. To the contrary, we probably ought to take note of Samuel's grief and learn from Samuel's grief. I mean, Samuel, after all, is is grieving because he loves the Lord and he wants to see the Lord honored in the land among his people. And so when God's rule is not manifest in the life of God's people, that is something to mourn about. And maybe at times we need to be more filled with lament that God's rule is not as it should be on this earth. It's not the lamenting that Yahweh is frustrated with. It seems to be the length of Samuel's lament. But God hasn't given up on his people. There is newness coming. Deliverance is coming. And so he says, fill your horn, Samuel. We're headed five miles south to the town of Bethlehem to the family of Jesse. And literally... The Lord says, we could translate it this way, I have seen for myself a king. Our translation, the English Standard Version that I read from this morning says provided. I have provided for myself a king. That's certainly an appropriate translation, but this idea of seeing is significant in this passage. I have seen for myself a king. Yahweh says. And the root word, the root Hebrew word that, that is translated as seeing occurs four times in these verses and a couple more times in the verses still to come. Why? Because we are learning how God sees. Now Samuel's response to this instruction from the Lord is, is perhaps how we would expect Samuel to respond. Are you serious, Lord? There is a king on the throne. You want me to fill my horn with anointing oil, which was the ancient way of setting apart and consecrating one for the Lord's service. You want me to fill my horn with oil and go anoint someone to take over your people when the position is already filled. Saul's going to ask questions. He's going to kill me. And notice what the Lord does. The Lord, in his love and his tenderness, he doesn't just say, go, you'll be fine. He kind of says, you're right. You're right. Take a heifer. 
Take a heifer. He provides a, a divine deception of sorts for Samuel. A solution that will dodge the questions. I'm headed to Bethlehem for a special sacrificial ceremony. That's his cover. So Samuel rolls into town and immediately he creates a stir. It's like uh, kids, uh, you know, the principal come into your classroom and saying, I want to see, uh, I want to see so-and-so in, the, in my office in five minutes. For you that work in the corporate world, it's when your boss's boss's boss shows up in your office wanting to talk to you. Why are you here? What have I done? People are nervous when a prophet of the Lord shows up in their town. A sacrifice, Samuel says, and make sure that Jesse and his boys are there. I doubt Jesse and his sons caught on to what was happening. This was kind of an under-the-radar event in the life of God's people in the land there. But when Samuel lays eyes on Eliab, this first son of Jesse, he thinks it's a done deal. Let's do this. Eliab is the oldest. He kind of walks in with this this swagger and and confidence. He's ripped. He's huge. He's six foot five, 220 pounds. He checks all the boxes for the next king of Israel. He's he's like maybe William Wallace, right? From the the movie Braveheart, the, the Scottish warrior. Mel Gibson should never have played him. Why? Because William Wallace was big. We don't know exactly how the historical William Wallace was, how big he was, but we know that his sword alone was five foot six inches long. So we sure hope he was bigger than that sword. It's interesting. If we were to flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 23, where Saul is described, we would read this. He was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. So I don't know how tall Eliab was, but I'm assuming that something about his physical appearance caught Samuel's eye. Samuel is conditioned to see as the world sees. He's the one. He's thinking that way because that's how we think. We judge by what we see. That's the air that we breathe, even more so in this visual age. What came to mind as I was thinking about this was our 27th president, William Taft. William Taft was a plump man. History tells us he was 5 foot 11, yet he almost weighed 350 pounds. We ask ourselves, couldn't, can, can, can an overweight man effectively govern a people? Of course. But would William Taft ever be elected in today's day and age? Probably not. Our eyes judge by what we see, but the Lord sees differently. Verse 7 is really a key verse. 
in this passage. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The heart. Pastor Paul Tripp describes the Bible's understanding of the heart as the causal core of our being. It's what shapes and controls what comes out of us, what comes into our lives. We are obsessed with the outward. God is obsessed with the inward, with the heart. And Samuel, at this point, he doesn't have God's eyes. And so seven sons results in seven no's. Is there no one else, he says. Verse 11, are all your sons here? Well, there's one more. And again, our ESV translations speak of this son as the youngest, but he, it could also be translated, that Hebrew word, as the smallest. He was the youngest, but he's also the smallest. He's such an afterthought that no one even thought to invite him to this ceremony. One commentator describes him as the male Cinderella. He's an outsider. He's with the animals. No one wants him there. And the drama builds as Samuel says, no, get that kid. Bring him here. We're not going to sit down until he comes. I mean, that's just like one sentence that we read and kind of, one wonders how long did it take? I mean, he wasn't like right there. And so they're just standing there waiting for this small shepherd boy to make his way to this ceremony that he wasn't invited to. And the Lord says, this is him. This is him. One wonders what the brothers said, how the brothers reacted what they even knew at this point about what was going on, we don't know, but we do know because the Bible tells us that this kid was a kid who had a heart after God's. He didn't look the part. He hadn't done anything. There was no external promise of what he might do. All that existed in this shepherd boy was a tenderness and an inclination to do the will of Yahweh. God's deliverance will come, at least in our eyes, through the least likely. And of course, this just points us right to Jesus. I love how Brett primed the pump for us. Not even knowing the content of my sermon this morning. Isaiah 53, we read it. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Mark 6, 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, a Nazareth, a Nazarene, a carpenter, a cross? Are you kidding? And yet this is God's 
way. Jesus arrived in the meekness and the weakness of a manger. He died in the foolishness and weakness of the cross. But it is through these things, through the weakness in the eyes of the world, that his power has been revealed for all to see. And as this truth comes from the life of David, the small shepherd boy, through Jesus And as it comes to us, we are reminded that it often doesn't matter what the world sees. In God's economy, the greater the weakness, the greater the strength. 1 Corinthians 1, 28, Paul says, God chose what is low and despised in the world. And of course, we could trace trace that story and that truth all through redemptive history. As we've done at previous times, Abraham, you're old, you're weak, you're past your prime, but I'm going to do something incredible through you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Moses, you are a scaredy cat. You ran away from Egypt because there was conflict. You say that you can't talk, but I'm sending you right back into the heart of that to be used by me to show my power. He even used a donkey to save Balaam from the angel of the Lord. And now David, the youngest, the smallest, you're the one. You're the one I want. God's deliverance comes through the least likely. Our weakness displays his power. So perhaps, perhaps, brothers and sisters, as we witness this entrance of David into God's story, as he reminds us of the deliverance that is going to come through the person and work of Jesus, we, we ought to pray for God's eyes to see ourselves and to see others rightly. God's deliverance comes through the least likely. That's the first and primary truth that I want to focus on. But as we close, I'm going to give you two bonus truths. This is no extra charge. Bonus truth. God's deliverance comes in His time. God's deliverance comes in His time. Frankly, this is something that the Lord has been personally teaching me recently. I mean, we're all about speed and efficiency these days. Just give me the quick fix and give it to me now. And yet over and over again in the Scriptures, we are reminded that God's timetable is so much different than ours. After all, David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, as we start this story, David is just a boy here. There's still a king on the throne. Jonathan is heir to the throne. It will be years and years of running and suffering before the results of this day actually come to fruition in David's life. Deliverance is coming. It's coming through the least likely manner. But it's still a ways off for God's people. 
God's got other work that he needs to do. Here's the pattern of Scripture. Sometimes there needs to be wandering in the wilderness before the land of promise. Sometimes there needs to be years of silence before the Messiah is born. But we need not despair because God never forgets his people. And he never forgets his promises. And so perhaps what we can learn from this is that we, we need to learn to reset our pace. We need to pray and renew our patience concerning what we want God to do, what he has said he will do, but what we don't see him doing yet. God's deliverance comes in his time. And then finally, bonus truth three, God's deliverance comes through his powerful presence. The end of the story this morning is Samuel taking that horn filled with oil and divinely appointing David to this special role. And as I said, it wasn't going to happen next week. It wasn't going to happen next month. This is a down payment of sorts of what was to come. And more than what was seen on the outside was the significance of what the narrator, what the writer tells us happened on the inside. Verse 13, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Did you notice something? It's the first time in this passage that David's name is used. Yahweh calls, and then Yahweh equips those whom he has called. It's prophesied of Jesus in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now we, as Jesus' followers, we walk in that good news. And if you think about David's heart, if you think about that inward reality of, of here was a man after God's own heart, if you think about wanting that, like I think about, want, I, I want to be like that, you can't just snap your fingers and make it happen. You can't manufacture a new heart, but God can give you a new heart. And God has given you his spirit as you have come to the deliverer, Jesus. And it's by and through this spirit that the first fruits of a new life, a new reality, has both come to us already and is still to come. The already and the not yet. That's what we live in. But God's deliverance comes through his powerful presence.
presence. So brothers and sisters, as we begin this story of David this morning, I want us to simply rejoice in God's story of deliverance through means that we wouldn't expect, through a Messiah that we don't deserve, through even you and me. You never know who God is going to use. Even you. Even me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant David. We thank you for his story and how it fits into your story of calling a people to yourself. And Father, as we think about this passage, as we think about this event in David's life, we ask, Father, that you would give us your eyes to see as you see, to see ourselves, to see others in that same light. And we ask us, we ask you that you would give us your spirit, that you would empower us to be about your will, agents of light, ambassadors of change, messengers of deliverance, of the promises that you have given your people, a promise that you hold out to the world, come all who are weary and heavy laden, I have rest for you. Oh Father, use use this word in the life of your people, I pray, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.